My sister and I were talking the other day about her 10-month-old, my niece, Zoe. Um, we were musing about what Zoe might grow up um, and need therapy for because of her parents. <laughs> Do you wonder this about your kids? Like, my sister takes parenting very seriously. She's always look, She's got an app for the CDC milestones for her kid uh, on her phone. She's researching healthy methods of discipline. Zoe started watching educational programs before I think she could even properly see shapes um, with her eyes. My sister's an achievement kind of person uh, who took a huge swing away from the sort of free-range approach of parenting from our childhood. Uh, So, of course, Zoe will grow up and resent her for being smothering and competitive, right? Uh, Isn't that how this works? We also, though, talked about how some of the things our parents did shaped us for the better in ways that they wouldn't have expected. Like how our dad never really approached the subject of feelings, something we used to resent, but he would cry unabashedly at our graduations or ordinations or track meets or whatever, anywhere he felt proud of us. Or how our mom and dad divorced when we were young, hard. But it meant Paige and I grew up with our stepdad, and we got to witness what a loving and affectionate relationship looked like between two adults, something we would have missed out on otherwise. Ultimately, our lives are more of a lesson to kids than our instructions, aren't they? Expectations and instructions are the keys to understanding our gospel this week. Uh, The past few weeks, we have been quietly listening without comment to Jesus' expectations of his disciples, who he wants them to be in the world They sound strange to us. He told his disciples to go out with nothing, no extra clothes, no money, just the bare essentials. He is clearly not a Boy Scout. He said to go and be with people, to bring them good news, to heal them. The most unexpected piece of the discussion for me was about welcome. Unexpected because the instruction on welcome was not for his disciples, about being welcoming to others, but how the disciples themselves would be welcomed by others and how to accept that. Like, they were going to be formed by the community they arrived at. Like, they needed to learn that God was on both sides of this equation, both with the disciples going out and in the communities in which they would arrive. This is a digression, but heeding a teaching like this might have headed off the Crusades or the missionary drive to eradicate indigenous culture. You know, at the very least, we should hear it and know that God is absolutely on both sides of our equations of ministry, too. So the disciples went, And now word about Jesus is getting around. Meanwhile, John the Baptist has been put in prison. You remember John, Jesus' cousin, 
who was believed to be the forerunner of the Messiah. John's message was hard and unyielding. Repent of your sins, for the kingdom of heaven draws near. You can find John in the desert, subsisting on what he could scavenge, rejecting all worldly goods and ways. John had quite the following, because this was how some people wanted their Messiah to be. Set apart, different, holier, angrier, stranger, an ascetic standard in a world of opulence. But now John is in prison and he is afraid. He sends word to Jesus to ask him if he's really the one. Sure, the blind see and the deaf hear, but Jesus doesn't act in the way that John acts. This is not what he expected, not what he wanted. And he's not alone in that. Jesus' speech today, then, outlines what everyone thinks about what these two would-be messiahs are all about. John came in camel hair and asceticism. People said he was a fanatic, demon-possessed. Jesus, on the other hand, came in and feasted, consorted with prostitutes and swindlers. He drank so much that when the party ran out of wine, he would just make more. And of course, no one was happy with this either. They called him a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus knows that the crowds don't get him and what he's doing. So it's after all this that Jesus says, Father, thank you that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. I know you're not going to get me, that all your expectations will only lead to feelings of being let down. But that's the only way you're going to be able to eventually let go enough to see a new way. Come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is, of course. This heavy wooden beam that keeps two draft animals together as they work. It was also a term used in Judaism to describe the law. One yokes oneself to the law, to the Torah. Jesus says his yoke is good. The word easy there isn't exactly right. I've never really thought Jesus' yoke was very easy, um, and the translation is a little off. It's more like, my yoke fits. It's right. And in farming practices, when you have a new animal to train on a yoke, you yoke it to a veteran animal who's worked with a farmer for a long time. So the newly yoked animal learns through this example of the one he's yoked to, not from the farmer himself. I don't think we're all that different than the crowds when it comes to living out the teachings of Jesus. It's still 
all so against what we know and feel. Turning the other cheek when you've been struck, seeing God and the stranger and the refugee, giving freely of your life, forsaking possessions, forgiving one's enemy, forgiving so entirely that you'd die rather than condemn them, a yoke that makes you gentle and humble rather than achieving and certain? Jesus says, try it on with me. Rest from your straining. Watch what I do. This yoke, this law, isn't a checklist of CDC milestones. It's making your life into the lesson.